Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn to our scripture this morning in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We were last together two weeks ago before I was on vacation. And when we were last together in Mark, we saw Jesus reveal his glory to his disciples by walking to them over the sea. He confronted their hearts once again with who he was as the Lord. Son of God. And in fact, if we want to summarize the first six chapters of Mark and their key theme so far, I think we would have to say that the key theme of Mark so far has been to demonstrate that Jesus is the Lord, the divine Son of God. He is the one who multiplies bread to feed his people, he is the one who heals the blind and the sick. He is the one who casts out demons with a word. He is the one who stills storms with a word. He is the one who treads on the sea. This is Jesus, the Lord. And that's who we've seen so far in these first six chapters. As we come to Mark chapter 7, we're going to begin to see in more detail how Jesus' authority as the Lord and his teaching clashes with the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this is the second, possibly the third time in Mark that a group of scribes and Pharisees have made the 90-mile journey from Jerusalem up to Capernaum. And of course, they're not there just to uh, spend a holiday. They're there to try to find some dirt on Jesus. Now, their last reconnaissance uh, mission in chapter 3 ended with them accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. This time they're going to hone in on Jesus' disregard for their legal traditions. So let's jump into the action and read together Mark chapter 7 verses 1 to 13. This is God's word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things 
you do. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that week after week as we come to your word, we would see it for what it is, not merely a book, but the words that you have given to your people. And I pray that even as your spirit inspired them, that you would now speak by your spirit to apply them to your hearts. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, Jesus certainly had a gift, didn't he, of making declarations that shocked people and forced them to re-examine their assumptions. One of the shocking statements that Jesus made early in his ministry can be found in Matthew 5, verse 20. It's where Jesus declares, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees were professional law keepers. They dedicated their lives to keeping every little detail of the law and the legal traditions. They were, they were the gold standard, if you will, of law keeping. So it would have been shocking to hear Jesus say, hey, if any of you want to have any part in the kingdom of heaven, you are going to have to be better at righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. It probably would have sounded to the Jews something like it would sound to our ears if someone were to come to us and say, you know, you're going to have to be better at playing the cello than Yo-Yo Ma if you want to honor God in our worship service. Or, or hey, if you want to show any real hospitality that's of any effect in the kingdom of God, you're going to have to cook a better meal than Gordon Ramsay and present it on a table decorated better than Martha Stewart. You know, if we hear these things, we would, we would throw up our, our hands and say, well, what possibility do I have of honoring God if I have to be better than the experts in order to do so? And that is what the people would have heard from Jesus' statement. But the reality is, there are two specific reasons why Jesus said that our righteousness had to be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And both of the reasons will come out here in Mark chapter 7 as Jesus responds to the Pharisees. Now we're going to look at the first reason this week and we'll look at the second reason next week. But this week we'll look at verses 1 through 13 where Jesus makes it clear that the Pharisees' righteousness was not actually righteousness at all because it was effort made to obey their own traditions rather than God's word. And that's Jesus' main point. Your efforts are all made to fulfill human traditions, not the word of God. And in making this point, Jesus addresses both the root and the fruit of the problem. And I want to look at them together this morning. So let's start with the root of the problem. The root of the problem with the Pharisees' righteousness, Jesus states explicitly in verse 7, where he says that they are teaching as doctrines, that is, official teachings of God, doctrines, the commandments of men. That is, they're taking rules and traditions that are not in Scripture, and they, they have been developed by the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees over the years, and yet they are teaching them or making them rules and traditions that are on par with God's Word and the standard for righteousness. Now, we have to understand the context for what Jesus is saying here, and verses 1 through 5 give us that context. The context of this discussion is a dinner party. It's a dinner party with some scribes and Pharisees and Jesus and his disciples. 
Of course, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a, a happy get-together of, of people sort of, uh, re, you know, reuniting around food. It's, uh, once again, an opportunity for the scribes and Pharisees to find fault with Jesus. And they find fault right away. It seems like the meal has barely begun when they jump on the fact that Jesus' disciples begin to eat with hands that are unwashed or defiled. Now, we may not exactly understand this, but Mark's original audience probably would not have either. You remember from our introduction a few months ago that Mark was writing to a Gentile audience, likely in Rome. And so Mark takes verses 3 and 4 to explain these Jewish traditions and explain the issue. And as Mark explains, this is not a question of hygiene. The Pharisees are not playing mom here and saying, well, don't you dare come and eat at my table with hands that are dirty like that, young man. You know, it's not that kind of thing at all. It has nothing to do with cleanliness. The problem had to do with rituals of purity. See, the Jews did not eat without washing their hands properly, not with soap to make sure they got the germs off of them, but ritually, properly, that they might be clean or pure. And not only that, Mark says, if they went to the marketplace, which would inevitably have brought them into the company of Gentiles, they would not eat without having thoroughly washed themselves after that interaction as well. And he says there were actually many more regulations of washing with cups and pots and and copper vessels and more. In fact, uh, you know that the Mishnah is the collection of the oral traditions of the Jews, and several scholars have estimated that roughly 25% of these oral traditions collected in the Mishnah have to do with ritual washings, washings of people, washings of things, washing of places, so that they might be set apart to God. Now, the irony in all of this is that the Old Testament says almost nothing about washing at all. In the Old Testament, the priests were required to wash before going into the tabernacle, but that's it. All these other things that the Pharisees had developed were their own rules and regulations. They were not found in Scripture at all. But we have to understand why the Pharisees thought these oral traditions were so important. See, they were developed largely after the exile, and the Jews knew that breaking God's law was a significant part of why they went into exile. And as they came back together, they were also interacting more and more with Gentile culture around them. And the desire was to maintain their purity and separation from the nations before God as his people. As one commentator explains, the the rigor of the oral tradition was an indication of the seriousness with which the Pharisees intended to uphold the law of God. If the Torah, if the law declared what God decreed, be separate and pure as my people, the oral tradition told Israel how to accomplish that in everyday life. You will be separate by washing yourself and your food and your house and your things. The problem was, as you see, the Pharisees had developed a system, a means of righteousness that was not found in God's law. So the Pharisees, they watched the disciples here completely disregard what the elders have established as the means for maintaining righteousness before God, and they're indignant. Of course, The Pharisees don't actually care about the disciples too much. Their real attack from the very beginning is on Jesus. Why do your disciples, Jesus, ignore the traditions of the elders? It's it's kind of like how someone might come up to you and say, well, why do your kids watch those movies? Now, they're not really concerned with what the kids are doing so much as attacking you and your parenting. 
And that's what's happening here with, with Jesus. But their question is the perfect opportunity for Jesus to address the question of the law and righteousness. So he turns to the Old Testament, to the Word of God, to it is written through the words of the prophet Isaiah, to drive home the root of the problem. The Pharisees have taken these commandments or rules that they developed. Maybe they even developed them with good intentions. They began to teach them as doctrines, as if they were commandments of God for righteousness. Now, I think it's important for us to note here that the problem was not in having traditions or rules. We can develop many habits, traditions, rules that may be helpful for us as long as they're not against God's law. We may have traditions for Christmas Eve and Christmas Eve services. We may have devotional habits that we find very helpful in drawing us near to the Lord, and all those can be well and good. We can also decide not to do certain things because of our conscience or our experience, and as long as Scripture doesn't require them, we are welcome not to participate in them. The problem comes when we begin to view these habits or, or rules or decisions with divine authority as required for all Christians. If you've been following with us in our series through Mark, you know that I've quoted often from the 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle. Well, I've been reading J.C. Ryle's biography recently, and it turns out that Ryle became a Christian in his college years. And when he came to faith in Christ during his college years, he wanted to make a distinct separation with some of his habits that had brought him to be involved in various sinful and worldly activities. And so Ryle made it a strict rule that he never went to dances, he never went to the theater, and he never played billiards, although he continued to be very involved on his cricket team. Now, those are fine decisions. He may make those decisions. It would become a problem only if Ryle had viewed these decisions as divine commandments and required everyone else to do them as well, or had viewed them as his standard of righteousness. And that was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees and their approach. Now, I think we would have to say before we jump all over the scribes and Pharisees, though, that the church has faced the same temptation and has fallen prey to this again and again over the years. Because it's so easy for us to check off a list of do's and don'ts rather than actually hold our hearts before the Lord. And it is so easy to jump the line from something that my conscience is convicted of or is helpful because of my experience or something my church or family has always done and begin to make that a rule for how everyone else should act as well. This was an issue in the medieval church that was challenged in the Reformation. Is Scripture alone our authority, or are the traditions of men and the leaders of the church also authoritative? I know that many of you grew up in churches that elevated certain rules. Don't drink. Don't go to movies. Don't play cards. You have to go to Wednesday prayer meeting. True worship won't use drums. And we could list all of these things that are elevated as required standards. And you are only really righteous. Your faith is only really legitimate if you check all the boxes of those standards. But those were all commandments of men. We don't find those commandments in the Word of God. And so your conscience should be free from those things to do them or not do them before the Lord. See, John Stott argues that all Christians have beliefs, practices or traditions 
that will begin to seem right to us because of our family or our culture or our Christian subculture that we're a part of. It may be how we use our money. It may be where we send our kids to school. It may be entertainment decisions. It may be political or social commitments. And we must be rigorously careful in our own hearts and as we interact with others to distinguish what are the clear commandments of God and their application and what are conclusions, rules, or habits based on our preferences, our experiences, or our traditions. And we should add that today, it may not just be what culture says or what our traditions have been. It may be what I think is good or right or makes the most sense to me. And we can elevate just what makes most sense to me as our standard for what is good and for what is right. And that too is elevating the commandments or rules of men because the crux of this issue always comes down to just one question. And the one question at the crux of this issue is what is your authority? What is your standard of what is true and what is right? Is it traditions and opinions of men? Is it what makes most sense to you? Or is it the word of God, which can alone be our standard of truth and righteousness? And that was Jesus' point here in Mark chapter 7. Scripture alone, it is written, is our authority. It is divine, and it is required of the people of God. Your traditions, you see how Jesus clearly distinguishes between Moses said, it is written on the one hand, and you say, your traditions on the other hand. Your traditions are human, subordinate, and optional. And the root of the problem with the Pharisees' perspective is that they elevated the traditions of men and made them divine, required, and authoritative instead of human, subordinate, and optional as they should have been. So that was the root of the problem. But next we want to go on to see the fruit of the problem. Because you cannot elevate the commandments and the traditions of men to the place of the Word of God without significant consequences for your life in your walk with Christ. And there are two consequences that this text brings out. The first consequence is that if we elevate the commandments of men, we will not honor God or achieve true righteousness. And Jesus brings this out in verses 6 and 7, where quoting Isaiah, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, because they have replaced God's commandments with their own commandments, they can work at them as hard as they want, but they are not achieving true righteousness before God. They are not truly honoring Him or worshiping Him. And I think it would be this way. Imagine uh, that you are at home as a child, and your parents come to you and say, you need to go and clean your room. You say, great. I'm going to obey my parents. I'm going to honor and respect my parents. So you march off down the hall, but on your way to your room, you notice that the garden really needs weeding. And so you take the detour and decide, I'm going to honor my parents by weeding the garden instead of cleaning my room. And you put effort into it. You weed that garden for hours and you say, there it is, I've honored my parents. Well, no, you've done what you thought needed to be done, but you haven't obeyed your parents. You haven't honored them. You haven't fulfilled what they asked you to do. You can't replace God's commandments with your idea and assume it still counts as righteousness because you worked really hard at it. 
It doesn't work that way. And this is the point that Jesus is making. It's also the point that Paul makes in Colossians chapter 2. You may remember Colossians 2, 20 to 23, where Paul says to the Colossians, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, it can feel empowering and very clear to come up with a good list of do's and don'ts and to pour your efforts into keeping those rules. But unless those rules are the commandments of God from His Word, your efforts have no effect at producing genuine righteousness or killing sin. And they are certainly not honoring to the Lord, for they are a self-made religion, not genuine obedience to God. And this, Jesus says, is the first consequence of following the commandments and the traditions of men rather than the word of God. But there's a second fruit, a second consequence of elevating the commandments of men. And it is this, that if you choose a different standard, you will inevitably break the first standard. Imagine it this way. Imagine one Saturday I decide that today I'm going to do the grocery shopping for our family. Now, I don't really know what we need, but Kate gives me a list and says, this is the food we need in order for our family to eat this week. And so off I go, but on my way to Giant, I discover that WebMD.com has an article entitled, The Perfect Grocery List which they do, by the way. So if any of you want the perfect grocery list, check it out, webmd.com. And let's say that I'm on my way and I think, boy, well, this is perfect. I'm going to use the perfect grocery list. Certainly this will get us exactly what we need as a family. But of course, what's going to happen? Well, that perfect grocery list from webmd.com is not the same as the list my wife gave me. And so inevitably, I'm going to get food we don't need And I'm not going to get the food we do need, so we will not have the food that we need for the week as a family. We will break the one list when we replace it with another. And this is what Jesus says in verses 9 through 13. He says, you will break the commandment of God by replacing it with the commandments of men. And in case the Pharisees were tempted to scoff at this suggestion, Jesus gives them a concrete example. He says, Moses gave you the law of God And in it we find that you are to honor your father and mother and that death is the penalty for reviling your parents. And yet the Pharisees had codified the tradition of Corbin. Now the tradition of Corbin was a law that said that you could dedicate or will your property to God upon your death. It's very similar to making a will and saying, on my death, all of my property goes to the Lord. And according to this tradition, if you had made this commitment... You could continue to use your money for yourself during your life, but you could not give it away to anyone or use it for any other purpose because it had been promised to God. Well, the effect was that if I had made this commitment, I could continue to use the money for myself, but then to my parents, if they were in need, I could say, I'm sorry, parents, I've dedicated my money to God. I can't give it to you. I can't help you. It's against the law. And the law we're talking about is not Scripture, but the commandments of men. 
And so Jesus says following your tradition is actually causing people to break God's law. And just in case the Pharisees might think this is a random anomaly, Jesus says, and many such things you do. Because whenever we elevate our opinions of what seems right or our tradition alongside of Scripture, it inevitably leads us to disobey Scripture at some point. We may think to ourselves, well, Scripture isn't 100% clear on this issue, but my rules are. We may think our standards are helping us interpret Scripture and apply it for today's world. We might think Scripture just doesn't seem reasonable on this point, but my rules are perfectly reasonable. And all of these become excuses for us. Because just like that, we have undermined the authority of Scripture as tradition and the opinions of men have become the standard and Scripture becomes secondary to it. Of course, sometimes it won't be a matter of directly choosing to disobey God's law. Sometimes it's a matter of just becoming so focused on our traditions and our regulations that we lose sight of God and his word as a result. R.C. Sproul explains it this way. Every time we add to the law of God, we inevitably subtract from it. Because instead of putting our attention on the things that God is concerned about, human regulations cause us to lose sight of what concerns him. Another commentator put it this way, our traditions, our rules, and our pet issues can shift the center of gravity away from the intent and the will of God to an increasing array of peripheral matters that take our attention and efforts instead. In fact, this is often how a departure from God's word starts, not by a decision to wake up one morning and say, we do not care about God's word, but as an increased focus on issues and positions and rules and concerns and traditions and other peripheral things to God's commandments take such a center role in our hearts that we lose sight of God's word itself. And that's a warning for all of us to take to heart. So as we step back, I think we can see clearly the first reason why a man must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because their righteousness was not actually righteousness. It was efforts towards a different standard. And they were not honoring or worshiping God through them. They were giving a careful, meticulous effort to obey their own traditions, which were not God's law, and even led them to reject God's law at many points. So it's no wonder that Jesus called his disciples to something greater. Well, as we come to an end this morning, I think the clearest application of this passage is that Scripture alone must be our authority. And we must rigorously bring every thought, every opinion, every action, every goal back to the standard of God's Word. As a church, this is true. As a church, any new idea or opportunity for ministry must be evaluated first based on its faithfulness to Scripture rather than its chances for success or what we think we need in the moment. And any practice of what we have always done or have never done must also be submitted to Scripture. For every church is always at risk of elevating the way it has done things to become the right way to do things. And it must remain under Scripture. And of course, each of us individually must be on guard for the way our preferences or cultural influences or traditions might shape what makes sense to us. And if I could speak to students for for a minute directly... Students, your habits and instincts are being shaped right now. So be in God's word. Surround yourself with the word of God. Let it soak into your mind and heart so that your instincts will be trained to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. 
And when you have any question, when you have something that tugs at your heart or a wrestling in your mind, remember that the first question you must answer before you can begin to work out that issue in your mind or heart is always this. Do I believe that Scripture is the Word of God and therefore my standard for truth and for righteousness? My ultimate authority as I consider this question. If your answer to that question is no, then you have nothing solid to stand upon but your own reason and what seems best to you. And you must stand on a source of truth in the Word of God. But adults, we're not exempt from this. We have the same issues, don't we? The longer we do things, the more we do things, the more likely we are to make preferences or habits into laws or commandments. And so we, need, we too need to surround ourselves with the Word of God. We too need to let it soak into our minds and our hearts. We too need to let it train us to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And when we have any question or when we have any instinct to judge another believer or default to a particular action or position, we must always resolve first in our hearts to ask, do I believe that Scripture is God's Word and it alone is a standard for truth and godliness? And that any added rule or standard to Scripture that I make a doctrine or requirement will not lead to righteousness, nor will it honor the Lord. So we must rigorously stand on the Word of God. But even as we stand on Scripture, let me remind you of one final warning this morning. And that is that even Scripture is not an end in itself. Do you remember the warning that Jesus gave to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39? When he said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures and you think that in doing so you have eternal life. In other words, they thought that they would find eternal life just by the process of studying scripture and towing its lines. And Jesus says, no, Scripture is important not because it is the end itself, but because it points to me. He says, the Scriptures point to me. They point to Christ, who is our life, who is our righteousness, who redeems our life from the pit and rescues us from our sin and selfishness and invites us through faith to join Him at the right hand of God for all eternity. We read Scripture because in it we find Him, the One who has loved us and given Himself for us. We read Scripture because it is sharper than a two-edged sword and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart and so convicts us of sin and points us to righteousness by the power of the Spirit of God alone. And so this must be our battle plan. Church, stay faithful to Scripture. Not because it's an end in itself, but because it is God's appointed means, His own word to us, to show us Himself to bring us to our Savior, to guide us in the truth that we might honor Him in lips and in heart, in spirit and in truth for the glory of His name and the salvation of our souls. And so may it be our battle plan from here to the end. Let's pray. Father, so much of what we do in life comes down to that crucial question, what is our authority? What do we believe is true from the mouth of God. Father, you've given us many reasons to trust your word. And I pray that we would be rigorous to hold our thoughts and our hearts to your word and your commandments as the way to pursue righteousness. 
and to honor and worship our God. I pray that we would be freed from the commandments and traditions of men that might hold sway over our consciences. I pray that we might pursue your word with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And in doing so, I pray that we would be brought to you, that we might find Christ, that we might find in Christ the one that we need, the Savior of our souls. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.